I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. In today's episode, we talk about being pro-life and the problems that exist that need to be remedied and how we talk about pro-life issues in the church and in the world. If you need any old chiropractic magazines, I have a lot of back issues. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 89. So good to be with you. Let's get into it. But before we do, just a reminder, please rate and review this podcast if you have not yet done so. It helps other people find it. The highest compliment you can pay this podcast uh, and me is to share this with a friend, especially on social media. Tag us at Man of Food for Thought on social media and visit our website manafoodforthought.com where you can see all of our blog, old vlogs, and past podcast episodes as well as become a patron for as little as $1 a month because this podcast does cost money to keep going. But with all that being said, it's so good to be back with you. Um, A lot has happened, I feel, since I've recorded an episode. I was ahead of the game a little bit, and now I'm kind of back on the normal schedule. So I actually haven't recorded an episode in a few weeks, um, even though they've been coming out on schedule. So a lot has happened. So uh, my peak pit and plug for this episode, my peak is that I had a big writing project um, that I had on my plate that got done, and it went really, really, really well. Um, so that is going to be published, I think, in the next couple months. Um, and then um, our house is fixed. Um, still in the process of getting cleaned now, and the exterior is just being finished, being painted by the HOA. So there's still some things going on over there. But a lot of the like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Is everything going to come together? All of that is done. So now it's just getting it cleaned and getting back in in the next couple weeks. So that is great. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your prayers. Continue to keep praying for us. Um, My pit is um, kind of along the lines of the joke I started with. My back actually has been really messed up because I was going to the chiropractor once a month. And then at least, and then I stopped when COVID started. So it's been almost a year since I've been to the chiropractor. And man, do I feel gnarly. So pray for my back. Pray for healing, please. Um, Also, we're trying to potty train Hannah. Um, She can go number one on the potty like all the time, but number two, terrified of it, doesn't want to do it, cries, has a tantrum, um, things like that. You can actually probably hear her in the background if you listen closely, Um, but prayers for that would be appreciated. Any advice would be great for you parents out there who've had success with that. so I know it'll happen. We just got to um, probably once we get back into our house and we can really like strategize and get her comfortable, um, that will be a lot easier. But um, that's my pit at the moment. My plug, man, I have been really loving a lot of different um, things. I've, I I recently finished a 30-day self-led retreat from a resource from Henry Nowen's writings. Um, I think it's called Draw Ever Closer. I don't have the title in front of me, so I'm sorry if that's not right, but I would highly recommend it because it's only 30 days. Um, it might be something that you can even get during Lent um, if you order it, you know, Amazon Prime it, but it's a good thing to do anytime. And I just finished a book by C.S. Lewis called Reflections on the Psalms, and there were a couple different things in there that were just really interesting. Um, just things he points out that I didn't really know about um, the Old Testament culture and the Jewish culture around some of the themes in the Psalms. Super cool. So, um, and Lent is, is starting. Uh, today is Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras. So Lent technically starts tomorrow as I'm recording this. 
Uh, and so my wife have started the con- my wife and I have started the consecration of Saint Joseph to finish on his feast day. Uh, we've been doing the Bible in a year, um, and so there's some great things happening there. We're doing some other stuff for Lent as well, but highly recommend those things. And uh, finally, a book I'm reading right now called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. He's an evangelical pastor, non-denominational pastor, um, but he's just so awesome. One of my favorite authors. Um, so I'd highly recommend it because a lot translates to Catholicism. Too much, probably, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I would highly recommend it. Anyway, one of the things that um, I wanted to mention, kind of going into church culture, going into talking about what it means to be um, Catholic, and you know that book that I mentioned, Letters to Church, is kind of um, a lot of issues um, and things that are prevalent in the American church, Christian churches, but do not ha- do not look like they're aligned with the church of the Bible. And um, I don't know, I feel like in some sense that, and a lot of other things that I've been reading and a lot of things I've wanted to say for a long time have all kind of coalesced to make this episode, which is all about the pro-life problem. So I want to start this episode by saying and declaring I'm reminded of declaring bankruptcy from the office, but I'm declaring that I am completely pro-life. I agree with the church's teachings, the doctrines and dogmas on all pro-life issues, and I am in full agreement. I, however, think there is misunderstanding in some of those nuanced areas of actual doctrine when it comes to sin in general out there that seeps into how we talk about pro-life issues. And I am in a big disagreement with the way that we talk about, um, the way that we apply the theology. So that's called the pastoral practice, uh, which is not doctrine. That has changed always, you know, so this isn't, I'm not proposing some change in church teaching. I'm not, um, you know, saying that church teaching is wrong. I completely 100% agree. I am completely pro-life. I believe from the moment of conception till natural death, all life is sacred and should be treated as such And any intervention on the part of humans to try and intervene and end life or harm life um, in any other way between those timelines is something that we are not called to do, something that is sinful, something we are forbidden from doing by God. So all that being said, I want to say that from the get-go, okay? Um, I think there's a big problem in the pro-life movement, and essentially, I think it comes down to the fact that the pro-life movement has made it about the issues And really just one issue, abortion. And we've forgotten that it's about people. It's about souls. All people. Not just the people affected by those issues, but the people we talk to about them. The people we disagree with. The people who have a different opinion, but maybe aren't living in those issues. Um, I think the pro-life movement has shown, especially in this last election cycle, that it cares more about the movement and the issues and being right about the issues than the people behind the issues. There's been this one issue mentality and language, this rhetoric that's used um, that is not in harmony with the belief of being pro-life. I just, I am someone who my life has been affected by abortion. Um, I lost a daughter to abortion when I was in high school and I've written a blog about that. I've talked about that many times. Um, that's, you know, common knowledge to anyone who, who knows me well, um, so it's not something I, I shy away from. It really affected my my life and my view and my my take on this. And this was before I was really uh, before I had my conversion, and um and the healing I experienced from Jesus in adoration really led to my conversion w- regarding this particular issue. 
So this is an issue that's very close to my heart, that is very lived in my own life. Um, and I will say again, I don't support abortion. I don't believe it helps anyone. I'm lived experience of that. Um, I support policies and laws that honor and uphold the dignity of every and all human life from natural conception to natural death. And so if you want to know like a little bit more about why being pro-life, especially why being against the issue of abortion, um, go back and listen to episode 18, I believe it is. We talk about that issue in particular, um, Jenna and I, in that episode. However, I want to get back to this kind of human disconnect. I'm one who believes, because of the woundedness that exists and how prevalent a lot of these moral issues are out there, anytime I speak about abortion, anytime I speak about a pro-life issue or any moral issue, I need to assume that the person I'm talking to, or if I'm on a stage, that everyone in the audience has committed that act or has been affected by it in their own family. And that changes the way that I use language, that changes the way that I minister, that changes the way I talk about an issue to show how to lead with the love that we were created for, the dignity that we have, and to show how something doesn't align with that, to bring woundedness into the light and then speak healing and reconciliation into that place. I do not see that happening in the pro-life movement at all. I don't. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. It's because it's stupid and it needs to be repented of and rooted out. I see a lot of self-righteous talking points that are promulgated uh, and with complete disregard for how they're received by other people, how they hurt other people, how they don't bring people into dialogue. And COVID has amplified that because we're not face-to-face. You know, we're not even like, you know, talking to one another. We're hiding behind a screen, hiding behind a false internet self. Um, And so I want to clarify some things that I think will help affect our language. Um, so first of all, this you may think this is a hot take, but this is a theological fact. If you look at the nature of sin, abortion is not always a mortal sin. I'm going to repeat that. Abortion is not always a mortal sin. Now, it is always a grave matter, which is one of the three requirements for a sin to be mortal. Um, it is always a grave matter. So there's never any way where it will not be grave. Um, that's just the, the, the degree to the loss of life. Uh, it's always a grave sin. And there are other sins like that, you know, um, uh, rape, um, torture, um, you know, taking the life of the innocent, which abortion falls under. All of those things are always grave, no matter what, no matter what the context is, no matter what the circumstances. However, there are two other qualifiers, things that need to happen in order for sin to be mortal. A person has to be completely aware that it is a mortal sin and the gravity of the sin. Now, there is another section in the catechism that says there are certain things that we should know, even if we're not Christians, just by natural law, that something is immoral or or uh, moral. Now, it doesn't specifically point out abortion, I believe, in that section, but you could infer that that um, is something that's a little bit harder to, um, to kind of negotiate. However, the third, consent, Um, Whether or not someone has their full mental faculties, whether they're forced or not, whether they are told or believe that this is literally their only option that's been force-fed down their throat, they have no other means of believing or path for any other option, that could disqualify the qualifications for a mortal sin in the area of consent. I would encourage you to go read the catechism on this issue because it's something that I think people don't talk about. We always talk about abortion like it's like the worst, that and maybe homosexuality in the church, especially in the traditional areas of the church. People always talk about those two things as if they're the worst possible things that you could do. There are only two categories of sin, venial sin and mortal sin. That's it. There's not like the the double mortal or like double dog mortal, worst, super worst, triple sin. Like there's not, there's no category like that. 
And so it all is sin, and God sees it all as sin. He sees it all as something that separates him, uh, us from him. Um, and mortal sin, the serious sins, uh, they say in the catechism, they separate us from the love of God. That is why we need reconciliation, why we need confession. And that is why a lot of mortal sins incur what's called excommunication. Now, people use that word and they throw it around, saying, oh, you're excommunicated, you're out of the church. That is not what it means. An excommunication is a declaration that a person has already separated themselves from God. And it's a declaration that is made, not officially. You don't get like a letter in the mail from the Pope that says, hey, I found out that you did a no-no. Like, that's not how it works. <laughs> so it just means like once you are made aware of the fact that this is a mortal sin and that all the conditions have been applied, you have to recognize that you have now separated yourself from God and from the church community as a result of the serious sin. And that sin affects people around us and that it wounds the body of Christ and we need to reconcile that. And so an ex excommunication is a, is a desire for people to be brought back into relationship. It's basically the church saying, if you do this, then you have separated yourself from the community. And we want you to know that so you will reconcile and come back. That's what an excommunication is. I think I've talked about this before, but I want to clarify that for this. Because... The church does say in the catechism, paragraph 2272, that um, formal cooperation in an abortion constitutes a grave offense. So formal co cooperation means like you purposefully did or contributed to this. Um, material cooperation, which is the other type of cooperation with evil, is like is an unintended consequence. Um, you drove someone to a strip mall because they needed a ride, but you didn't know they were going to get an abortion or something like that. That might be material cooperation. Um so the church says that uh, excommunication um, is um, rendered immediately once we commit the offense um, to certain types of sins. Uh, and those are um, things um, such as apostasy, heresy, and schism. Uh, anyone who desecrates the Eucharist, anyone who physically attacks the Pope, uh, a priest who is um, in confession and absolves a person with whom they violated the sixth commandment, who they've committed adultery with, um, a bishop who consecrates another bishop without the Pope's permission, a priest who violates the seal of confession, they tell someone your sins, they're excommunicated immediately, uh, a person who procures an abortion, and then accomplices who were needed to commit an action that has any of these um, qualifications. So any accomplices who willingly um, committed or helped commit any of those things. All of those immediately, like an automatic excommunication happens. So all of those kind of have to do with the role of, you know, priests and the Pope and bishops, except for um, abortion um, and kind of desecration of the Eucharist or desecration of the faith, which is apostasy, heresy, and schism. That comes from canon law, by the way, um, the code of canon law. I think somewhere, where does this start? Probably like 13... Gosh, 1329 to 1398-ish, somewhere in there in the Code of Canon Law. Um, so all of those things incur an immediate excommunication. Now, the problem I have with that is that, not that those things are on there, but I think if those things incur an automatic excommunication, a lot of other things should. Like rape's not on there, incest is not on there, um, you know, torture, um, euthanasia is not on there, like stuff like that. Like that, that stuff seems to me to be the same level of seriousness because these things are very grave. All of these are mortal sins. Why? I, I think we've lost this idea that like when you commit a mortal sin, any mortal sin, you've pretty much incurred an excommunication because you have separated yourself from God and the community. 
That's what excommunication means, ex out of the community. And the church says, hey, you've committed a mortal sin. Come back through reconciliation. Be reconciled to the community through a person that represents both God and the community who you've separated yourself from in the person of the priest. That's why we have that. Now, there is another form of excommunication, which is it's called um, ferende sentiate or sen- sentencia, something like that. It means upon review, upon judicial review. So you might incur excommunication. It depends. You kind of have to consult with somebody to determine the circumstances. Um, so this is if someone tries to celebrate mass without being a priest. I don't know why you need an investigation for that, but this is from canon law. I'm not making this up. Uh, someone hears a confession or tries to absolve without having the ability to do that. Um, someone breaks the seal of confession indirectly. Um, if someone overheard, um, wait, what does this say? No, I'm misreading that. Okay. If someone omits stubbornly, um, the commemoration of the hierarch in the divine liturgy. Um, so I guess if you forget to say the, uh, names of the Pope and pray for them in mass, um, dang. Um, I think that might just be in the Eastern church. Um, if someone incites sedition, against uh, any hierarch, especially a patriarch or the Pope as an Eastern Catholic. Um, wow, these Eastern Catholics have some... Okay, I'm going to skip the Eastern Catholic ones because um, we're talking about Roman Catholicism. Yeah, all the rest of these are Eastern Catholic. So I guess in the Eastern Catholic Church, there's a, a lot of these things um, that pending review might be considered more serious. But for the most part, if you try and commit a sacrament or perform a sacrament and you're not canonically ordained, validly ordained, or you break or desecrate one of those sacraments, either upon review or um, immediately you are um, considered excommunicated, whether you're a lay person or priest or bishop. The only, you know, other things there are desecrating the Eucharist, turning away from, you know, the faith as an apostate, a heretic, or a schismatic, or an abortion. So why do I say all of that canon law stuff? Because, as I said, there's so much that's not on here. And I think like, a lot of those things are more like practically hierarchical, like try and keep the church running. Like I think, I think if we're going to keep abortion on there, which I think we should, I think we should say that it, it is a grave matter. However, again, going back to mortal sin, not every grave sin is a mortal sin. You need the other two qualifications for it to become a mortal sin. So I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of abortion. That's not what I'm getting at here. What I'm trying to communicate is that there's always a gray area. There's always a context. There's always a person, a real person behind the issue. And so, I don't know, I just wish we in the church, when someone came up to us and asked, like, what does the church teach on abortion? Or what does the church teach on same-sex marriage? Or what does the church teach on um, this other moral issue? If our, if our response could always be, why are you asking? Like, tell me why you're asking. What does this issue mean to you? And we would get to hear maybe how they've been hurt by how the church has treated them, how that issue has affected them. And that should all change our language. That should all allow us to bring truth, but also bring healing. But all I see is just kind of a vehement anger behind all of this, like, quote unquote, bringing of truth. Like, I'm just going to spew it out in a tweet. And I don't care who it hurts and how it cuts because the truth is the truth and we need to be bold and we need to stand up for something. It's like, yeah, we do need to stand up for something. Loving one another. Like that is the call. That's what Jesus says in his priestly prayer in John 17. He says, they should know you based on how you love. Do you know a single church or single Christian that like, oh, I know they're Christian because of how they love. I don't, I can't name a church. 
I can't. Not a single evangelical or Catholic church that I've ever come across or been to or belonged to can I say, oh, that church was known because of how they love one another. I don't think so. So part of the reason why this has become such a difficult issue is because there's a document from the USCCB, the United States Bishops, um, called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. And it uses this language. It says abortion is the preeminent social issue of our time. And I agree, there's been unprecedented loss of life. Um, That's in the introductory letter to that document. It mentions abortion. But later in the document, it also mentions abortion and euthanasia in that context. And so there's kind of an expanding thing there. So it's not necessarily just associated with that one issue. But people took that line and basically applied it to voting, applied it to public policy and politics and how we talk about pro-life issues and just were like, all right, You either need to vote pro-life, which means you need to vote against anyone who supports abortion, or you are, you know, dead to the church, you are excommunicated, you are formally cooperating in the evil to bring about more abortions. None of those things were true. None of those things were true. That's not church dogma. That's not doctrine. That is from this pastoral document trying to guide the church and the the faithful and how you form your conscience when you approach the polls. This doesn't have to do with doctrine. It comes from doctrine, but you don't have to believe everything in this document as doctrine. They point out particular issues that they think are very important for us in America that we should be informed about and recognize as more important than a lot of other issues when it comes to political elections and things like that. But in all of it, there's contradictions all throughout it. Like if you were to read it, you wouldn't know who to vote for. You'd always feel pulled in one direction or the other. There'd be limits to both There'd be bad things about any decision because of how this document's written. And the same thing is true with church teaching. Like if you fully believe in church teaching and then you try and bring that to politics, you're always going to find something lacking in any party, any candidate. Um, But people will use this line, have been using this line, as a reason to kind of shy away from or um, neglect all the other gray areas, all the other um, kind of areas of tension and say, well, if this is the preeminent social issue, then I'm just going to concentrate on this and that's it. And I think that shows an injustice to the document and the people didn't actually read it. And it's treating a document as doctrinal when it's not a doctrinal document. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to mention that. Um, it is a very important issue for us. It is. Um, it is one of the preeminent social issues. I don't think it's the only one we need to worry about. Um, I think we've gotten into this habit of forgetting that pro-life means both and. Like we can stand for all of these different issues. And if you vote... This is the problem. There's a lot of problems, y'all, but they all go back to that singular problem that it's it's become about the issues in the movement, not about the people. Um, that a lot of us, um, well, I won't say us because I don't feel like I did this, but a lot of people, um, I think, approach the polls with this kind of conviction that I'm doing the right thing. I'm voting for my conscience. I'm voting for these particular issues. And then they check the box and that was it. When, in reality, anything that that person you voted for, anything that they stand for that you are against as a Catholic, you should immediately then be trying to be active in communicating that to them. That's local representatives, senators, president, to be able to write, advocate, campaign, share you know messages about these other issues that you're like, I voted for so-and-so, but I disagree with X, X, and X, and here's why. I didn't see any of that from the pro-life side. I didn't. I just saw this is what we have to do because it's the right thing to do. 
uh, and kind of like screw all the other issues. And that I think is, has done such harm to the church and the way people perceive the church. And it's completely neglecting our role to talk to people. Like, will our, this is the thing that I've, has really been plaguing me. Will our arguments and laws even change, change abortion, change these pro-life issues really in any dramatic way? Like, sin will always be a reality. You cannot legislate the kingdom of heaven into existence. The government is not the church and the president is not the pope. So why do we expect them to be? Why are we trying to do that? Please, someone explain this to me. Like, we, we must work for the common good and participate in society. But we don't do it only from a computer screen or polling place or sitting on the couch. We do it first and foremost through relationship, listening, having empathy, bringing the hope of Jesus Christ into people's brokenness. Jesus did not become Caesar. He could have. He could have gone to Caesar and been like, hey, you know, these are the things that I think everyone should do and you should make them law. And he could have convinced him. But no, he came into people's brokenness one person at a time. He chose 12 men. And because of them and the people he encountered, now, 2,000 years later, roughly one in three people on the planet is a Christian because they personally encountered another Christian. And that has allowed them to personally encounter Jesus Christ. They're living out that mission from the Gospel of Matthew. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They took that seriously. They didn't legislate it or demand it. In fact, it was illegal to be Christian. And even when Christian became, Christianity became the legal religion or legalized religion and then the official religion of the Roman Empire, guess what happened? The Roman Empire, it fell. It fell. So... Yes, we need to be active in the political sphere. I'm not saying we don't advocate for laws to make sure that there are less and less and less abortions available, but I think we also need to make sure that the issues that drive people to abortion, I think sometimes we just think like they just wake up evil and they're worshiping demons and they they obviously just want to do this evil thing. No, there's a lot of people who are driven to abortion because of poverty because of their uh, legal status, because of immigration, because of fear, because of abuse, because of rape, because of all these things that we need to enact laws and bring that pro-life stance to. Legislation will not fix abortion. It will take a huge chunk out of it. But will it, you know, abortion has been around since the Bible and before. There are references to abortifacient potions and treatments fumigating a woman's uterus, like in the Bible. Like this has always been around. And think about it, the law law didn't fix murder. There are 15,000 murders a year in the United States. It didn't fix rape. There are 125,000 reported rapes in the United States every year. It didn't fix drugs. It didn't fix theft. Will it help? Yes, I think it will help. I think it will. But is it the only thing we should be advocating for? Like, if you think about worldwide, if we really want to bring our Christianity into the world, there are 46 million abortions a year in the world. That's an awful number. And in, the, in our country, we have somewhere between 600,000 and 900,000 a year. It depends on where you get the statistics from. About 600,000 and 900,000 a year. That's 1.3% of the abortions in the entire world. However, in the Western countries that report a lot of these statistics, 250,000 rapes in the world. Do you remember how many I said were in the United States? 125,000. That's 50% of the reported rapes in the reporting countries in the world. A third of the countries that report these types of statistics. Those happen in the United States. I don't know, maybe there's a bigger, wider problem going on here that we can't just solely focus on one issue. And I know if you were to talk to a lot of the pro-lifers who I might be, you know, like characterizing in this way, they would say, of course we didn't do that. 
But if you listen to the language and the way it's presented, I, I don't think you realize how it's being received by people. That is how it sounds. That is what people think of the church now because of that rhetoric. I think overturning like overturning Roe v. Wade sounds like this like big obstacle that people are working toward. It sounds complex, um, but really, I think it's the easy way out. One law will not end one million abortions. It won't, because we have less than that in our country. Uh, it's still a huge number, and there's still all these happening in the world. We need to bring our pro-life rhetoric and and love and dignity for all people into everyday life. Because if we do that, if we just try and legislate it, no one will be any closer to knowing Jesus. No, there'll just be one less issue for us to harp on about. And probably people who thought that that was their only way out, who haven't been supported with other issues that are causing them to turn to something like abortion, are going to feel even more destitute. And they might blame the church because of that. So I I hope I'm making sense here. Like, I, I don't, I'm not advocating for a sense that we talk about abortion less or we don't, uh, we stop disagreeing with it. I'm not saying that, but I think the way, like think of the language that we use. We say that we're pro-life. That means that anyone who disagrees with us, if you pay attention to the rhetoric, we're inferring that anyone who disagrees with us is pro-death. Like there's some satanic baby killer that wakes up in the morning and is just like, I want more death. Like, no. Most people who are pro-choice they do. They believe that because they're doing it for the livelihood or the life of somebody. They have good intentions. I wholeheartedly believe they have good intentions because in every sin, every sin is not just some abject, complete evil. It's a distortion of what is good, true, and beautiful. That's in the catechism. When we use language like abortion is murder, nope. You can't say that because it's not. Murder, the legal definition of murder, requires malice. It requires that you prove malicious intent. That's why you don't have murder investigators. You have homicide investigators. A homicide is a legally uh, defining term saying that a human has ended the life of another human. So you can say abortion is homicide. Yes, you can absolutely say that because in a, a child in the womb from the very moment of conception is a unique DNA code that's a unique human person at the uh, very beginning of their development. And we continue to develop out of the womb even all the way till the end of our life. Nothing changes except location, geography. And so you wouldn't apply that to any other thing like, okay, it's fine to kill me when I'm in a cave, but not when I'm out of the cave. Like, no, you wouldn't do that. So anyways pro-life arguments go back to episode 18 but i think like we have to be careful of the language that we use and and even on the pro-choice side like people who say they're pro-choice you're automatically implying that you want to take away choices the other side wants to take away choices that they don't believe in choice no of course of course we believe in choices we believe that there should be a variety of things like adoption foster care um you know livelihood um enforcing policies and and values that are brought to these moral issues that aren't just like a one cut and dry thing that's what church doctrine supports if you read it holistically but if you narrowly focus in on this one issue then you just become this kind of echo chamber of very self-righteous and often hateful sounding true statements and that's just it's a very dangerous thing to be talking that way and i think more people were driven away from the church because of how christians approached this election and this issue in particular than you know, uh, many times, you know, any time that I can remember in my lifetime, maybe even more than the sex abuse scandal, because the sex abuse scandal, you know, it was perpetuated and covered up by 
um, the institution of the church, primarily. I mean, there may have been lay people involved. There probably were lay people involved. But lay people um, and the rest of the institution of the church that was still good came together to create policies where now every single person has to be trained, fingerprinted, all these things. So the opportunity should not even be possible for that to happen if everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing and following up. And there's accountability for that. But this is like a sin of like the whole, like I'm talking the whole church, like lay people, hierarchy, everybody. Like who's going to fix it? Who's going to keep us accountable in this? I think the opportunity we had, the negative opportunity we had to potentially do greater harm because of how widespread the church is when you include all the lay people could have been worse. I don't know. I don't want to downplay the hurt either that people have experienced because of the sexual abuse crisis. And I don't want to equate them in any way that is um, insulting or devalues someone's experience. It's not what I'm going for either here. But I think um, I, we just need to realize the language that we're using. We need to call things what they are. Most people who call themselves pro-life are just anti-abortion because they spend no effort working toward better legislation for all the other issues pertaining to life. Immigration, adoption, foster care systems, refugees, capital punishment, climate change, poverty, hunger, all those are pro-life issues. And most people who are pro-choice are just pro-abortion. They don't consider how a woman having an abortion robs her of so many other choices, like of having future children, of having good mental and emotional health. Um, she has a lower life expectancy. She has at least a three times higher risk of suicide and drug use, um, you know, and, and depression. Like all those things are proven statistics. Um, she is completely removed of having the evidence needed to pursue and bring justice to an attacker if she was raped, taken away from her. Um, she could give life to a child or to parents who can't conceive. Like there are all these opportunities that are taken away, um, choices that are taken away. And so I, I think both sides need to like repent of the narrow way they think that just focusing on this issue encompasses like all of these moral issues and like a healthy approach to them all. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, so I think this is the biggest, the big issue with the pro-life movement right now. It's not anything that it stands for. It's how it represents itself, how it speaks about what it stands for. That is a huge issue. I, I, I see so many individuals demonizing the other side and not providing or pursuing any meal reins of action or dialogue. Like how many people who shared on Twitter or shared on Facebook these things about being pro-life or if you vote for Biden, then you're going to hell or whatever. How many of them actually called their representative, wrote a letter, like voted on the issues that surrounded all these other pro-life things that were on the ballot or people who were local, you know, local people who could who could help with that. Your local propositions wherever you are. It's just argue, complain, and debate. It becomes this monologue. There's no dialogue, no listening, no deepening of an understanding as to what might drive someone to an abortion or how to help with those things. You know, I, I think that's what bothers me the most because I have this lived experience. And, and again, my lived experience is different than other people's. But I just imagine, like, being in the situation that I was in high school and hearing the rhetoric that people in the church are using to speak about abortion, it would have driven me further away, 100%. I'm not saying that just for dramatic effect. Like, I can tell you where I was, who I was at the time. Absolutely. Wouldn't have touched the church with a 10-foot pole at that point. I would have been gone. And so I just think if you have posted about a political issue and that you have not called or written your representative about, I think you're virtue signaling and you're not helping anybody. If you're going to stand for something, recognize that the action required for that stance needs to be backed up more than five seconds of effort that came from clicking post. And that if you're doing that as a Catholic, 
or someone who professes to be pro-life, it encompasses a lot of different issues, a lot of different issues of dignity, of racism. You know, how did we see that these two completely pro-life issues of abortion and racism fall on different sides of the political spectrum is beyond me. Like that, they, they have to do with the same essential component of human dignity. So why can't we stand for both? Why can't we stand for all of them? And recognize when we come to the voting booth, we're voting for the best we can, and we can't have this hurtful, um, self-righteous, demeaning rhetoric when it comes to how other people should do that. Because their context is different, their geographic location is different, the issues on the ballot in their area are different, how it affects their community is different, and there's so many levels of experience you don't have the context of or the knowledge of. I think every time we talk about these issues, we need to expect that the people that we're talking to them about have had abortions or have known someone and loved someone who's had an abortion, have been affected by it deeply. And whether they see that as a positive or a negative, we need to be aware of that and try and approach that in that way. And that applies to any other issue. So why, why not both? Yeah, it's messy, but that's what Jesus did. He went to the messy places and did it one person at a time. He didn't go to Caesar and say, okay, just make this legal and everything will be okay. Because empires will rise and fall. Countries will rise and fall. Political alliances, political figures will rise and fall. And then the next person who comes in is just going to undo everything the person before them did because we can't get any form of progress in this country because we're so against each other. If we started doing this in dialogue, there would be room for reconciliation. I say this as someone who's passionately pro-life, and I'm happy to talk to you or anyone about why I am, about why these issues, I believe, all honor the fact that we are meant to be treated and live with dignity, and that these issues, I stand for them the way that I do because I feel that the opposing stance insults, attacks, or abuses the dignity of human people. I wouldn't stand for them if I didn't, because I believe we're called to love everybody. And that's where my stance is rooted in, is the love for all people. And so that tone should come out in how I talk about them. How people feel when they leave conversations with me about pro-life issues. They should feel like they've been treated with dignity and that they've been spoken to with love while I'm also sharing the truth of what I believe with them. The truth of how we were created, of how God created the world. How can we do that? Because we need to do it better. And I think a saint that we can turn to to do it better is St. Gerard Magilla. St. Gerard's a beast. He is um, my daughter's middle name. Gerilyn is named after him. He's the patron saint of pregnant women, mothers, childbirth, unborn children, and the pro-life movement. He's also often invoked for people who are having trouble conceiving, which is why um, we prayed a novena to St. Gerard. We're having trouble conceiving. And Hannah was conceived on the ninth day of that novena. And that is why her middle name carries his moniker. Um, he was a redemptorist lay brother. He wasn't a priest. He was a lay brother uh, during his life. And um, he was very close to peasants and outsiders. Um, this was around the 1700s, early 1700s. Um, and he lived in the Neapolitan countryside in Italy. And he did a lot of work in the community. He was he had a lot of different jobs. He was a gardener, sacristan, tailor, porter, cook, carpenter, a clerk. And he witnessed his faith in everyday life. Uh, he was reportedly pretty good looking. So when he was 17, an acquaintance of his named Neria actually accused him of having relations with a young woman. And so he was actually confronted by Alphonsus Liguori, St. Alphonsus Liguori, who was the founder of the Redemptorist um, Brotherhood that he belonged to. And he uh, confronted him on the accusations, and Gerard stayed silent. He just had faith, 
and later that girl recanted and cleared his name. He died two years later of tuberculosis. Sometimes, this is what St. Gerard, I think, is teaching us in this. Sometimes being silent is practicing virtue, and sometimes it is a sin. Wisdom is knowing the difference. Sometimes we need to listen, sometimes we need to speak up, but we need to have wisdom to know the difference. There's a particular miracle um, that explains how he became known as the special patron of mothers. Um, so a few months after his death, he visited, um, or a few months before his death, <laughs> he visited um, the Parafalo family, and he accidentally dropped his handkerchief. And one of the girls um, saw the handkerchief after he had left, and she ran after him to return it, and he said, keep it. You might need it someday. And so years later, when the girl who was a married woman, she was on the verge of dying in childbirth. She remembered for some reason that he said that to her and that she had this. And so she asked for the handkerchief to be brought to her. And almost immediately her pain disappeared and she gave birth to a healthy child. So that was no small feat in an era where one out of three pregnancies resulted. um, Only one out of three pregnancies resulted in a live birth. Uh, And word of the miracle spread quickly and he became known. Uh, by that. Um, and so I think we need to be conscious of what we leave behind. We need to be recognizing we're always linking a, leaving a proverbial handkerchief behind. And people will act on that later. Do we leave them with love and dignity that they can use and that will drive them forward to deeper understanding? Or do we leave them with division and hurt? All of that can come from speaking truth about the same issue, but in the way we talk about it. That is the big problem, I think, today in the pro-life movement and conversations around pro-life issues. And I think we can help one conversation, one compassionate person at a time. So if you have questions, if you think I'm totally off base, if you think this was not helpful, or if you have questions about how to do that in your own life, I'm happy to do a follow-up episode, a Q&A, figure out how maybe the unique situations you find yourself in, you could do this. Or if I spoke without clarity or in a way that you think is completely um, complete heresy, please let me know. But um, trust me, go look at those things in the catechism. I don't believe I did, but I, you know, I make mistakes. So let me know. But all that being said, know that I am so grateful for all of you who continue to support and listen. Um, I hope this podcast was beneficial to you. I hope you'll feel free to share it with somebody, maybe drive you into deeper conversation about how to witness on these things, because they are very important issues that we need to stand up for. Um, but all of that being said, know that I am praying for you. Please pray for me. And until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. God bless.